quick note before we begin. This entire episode was recorded before the attempted murder of Jacob Blake. Unlike last week's episode and many episodes of the Choose Your Struggle podcast recently, there is no overt segment dedicated towards social justice issues on this episode. That being said, I didn't want this opportunity to pass without saying that I stand with all those who are calling for justice for Jacob Blake. For more on that, please check out last week's episode with Priya, where we talked about social justice issues at length, and many other episodes of this podcast. It's a topic we've covered a lot because when it comes to issues of mental health and substance misuse and drug use at all, social justice is part of that conversation almost one-to-one. I'm recording this on Thursday the 27th, and I am happy to say that I'm a very proud fan of the Boston Celtics and the Cincinnati Reds. Last night, the Reds did not play. It's not a boycott, it's a strike. Very distinctive difference between those two words, and I'm very proud of the Reds for striking last night. I'm proud of the Celtics for continuing to speak out and contemplating a strike in the NBA playoffs, which is what every little boy dreams of doing. And also, gotta say, I'm also incredibly proud of the WNBA players for doing the same thing. These are people who have dreamed of getting to where they are today, and they put these issues first because they're more important. Because this was recorded before this, I don't even know what to call it anymore, incident, this repeated nature, this is the normal in our country. There is no good egg that, you know, as with previous episodes, asked you to go do something. So I'm going to do that now instead. My wife and I will be attending a protest walk this, this Saturday. Do something. Do something. You know, we are past the education stage, as Priya so beautifully talked about last week. We are past that. The time, please continue to read. That's that's great. But the time for simply educating yourself is over. It's been over. You cannot claim ignorance anymore. The time for action, it's long overdue. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. On November 3rd of 2019, Katie Hill resigned from Congress just 10 months into her first term. During her brief time representing California's 25th Congressional District, Hill became the first openly bisexual person elected to Congress from California and is believed to be the second ever in our country's history. After beating incumbent Steve Knight by running what Vice News called the most millennial campaign ever, Hill, who just turned 33 this week, was recognized as part of the class of young women who represent the rise of members of the millennial generation, a group that also includes Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
Ilhan Omar, and Lauren Underwood, amongst many others. At the time of her election, Hill was the second youngest member of Congress. The beginnings of the end came on October 13th of 2019 when Red State, a deeply partisan Republican blog, published personal and explicit pictures alleging Hill had been having an improper relationship with a staff member. If this was true, it would constitute a criminal act. The article, which spends as much time focusing on Hill's sexuality as the allegations themselves, also features screenshotted text between Hill's then-estranged husband and a friend of his, which her now ex-husband alleges were obtained without his consent, an excuse that Hill has publicly said she doesn't believe. The article was quickly followed by one in the British tabloid The Daily Mail, which published even more pictures of Hill, this time barely bothering with the allegations themselves, instead focusing on the nude pictures. It was the first in a series of articles the trash rag published centering on what they called Hill's unprofessional behavior. Hill has said, repeatedly, that the allegations are completely untrue, and the release of the pictures she's called revenge porn and gross invasions into her privacy. Hill did acknowledge, on October 23rd of last year, what she now admits was an improper relationship with a member of her campaign staff that ended before she took office. In a passionate speech from the House floor, which I'll link in the show notes, Hill took aim at the double standard and misogynistic culture that exists at the core of our country, saying, Yes, I'm stepping down, but I refuse to let this experience scare off other women who dare to take risks, who dare to step into this light, who dare to be powerful. It may feel like they won in the short term, but they can't in the long term. We cannot let them. She went on to underscore this point, saying, I'm leaving, but we have men who have been credibly accused of intentional acts of sexual violence and remain in the boardrooms, on the Supreme Court, in this very body, and worst of all, in the Oval Office. All of this is well known. It's been reported ad nauseum, to be honest. What hasn't been covered to the same extent, and frankly what's been ignored pretty much at all, is how this period affected the women behind the incident. Katie Hill is not some unfeeling superhero. She's a person with feelings. And this incident has had a profound impact on her mental health. In fact, her story includes multiple suicidal periods and a tremendous amount of guilt. This was the focus of our conversation. My hope is that for the next hour you'll put aside your preconceived ideas about Katie Hill and instead focus on the story of a person who's been through something most of us cannot even begin to imagine. A few notes before we begin. This was an incredibly intimate interview. Katie wasn't in some recording studio. This wasn't your NPR-style conversation. She's sitting on a bed at a friend's house, and you can hear that on her end as people come into the room as she drums her fingers on the computer as she shifts positions during an uncomfortable question. I personally love this, as I think it serves as a reminder of the vulnerability of our conversation. Also, sort of to that end, not two minutes into our conversation, my entire neighborhood lost power after a transformer blew up. We were able to save the interview thanks to the quick thinking of my wife and her Verizon hotspot, but for about half the interview until my power came back, 
my side of the interview sounds a little bit farther away due to the lower recording quality on my end of the Zoom conversation. It's barely noticeable except to me as I've become a little bit of a perfectionist in this work. But luckily, Katie sounds clear the entire time, and let's be honest, we all want to hear more from her than me anyways. Finally, if you're new to this show, if you saw that Katie was opening up about her mental health and you wanted to learn more, or if you're an old friend who's been listening since the beginning, a couple of ass, please review the show. There's a link in the show notes that will help you do that quicker than going to finding a place to review it. Rate it if you're listening on Apple, and thank you to all those who've been doing that. I I really appreciate it. Share it with your friends. That's number one. Please share it with your friends. It means a lot to me. I truly believe in these topics, and I think that we need to be talking more about them, so sharing it helps so much. You can find me at my website, jshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com, or on LinkedIn at J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N. Also, in the show notes, you'll find a podcast survey. I really appreciate if you take a moment to fill that out. And you'll also find the the links to the Patreon page, which is a way for you to support the podcast, the reviews page that I mentioned before, and other ways to contact me. Now, without further ado, please stick around until the end of the interview for this week's Choose Your Card and Good Egg. And thank you sincerely for checking out this podcast. Enjoy the show. Y'all know him as the superstar stand-up and blockbuster actor, but did you know that Kevin Hart is also a New York Times bestselling author? And he's back with his second book, The Decision, Overcoming Today's BS for Tomorrow's Success. And you can get it today on Audible. Just for signing up, they're going to give you two free audiobooks and a select free Audible original to get started. So go to the link in my show notes and sign up for Audible today. I do want to start by saying, obviously, because you did represent a district of California, that our thoughts are with the entire state of California um, and the heroes in the front line trying to fight the numerous wildfires. Um, I, I can't imagine what that's like, and I never want to have to to do so. So, you, I, I, there's so many different directions we can go in, but I want to start with a certain, and we're going to go right into this. And I hope that's okay with you. We're going to dive right into some of this. Uh, my story very quickly so that you understand why this is so important to me is I am a survivor of a couple of suicide attempts and an overdose. So these issues are very personal to me. Now, I haven't had to live through a moment that you have. And and I want to be frank with you. I will not call it, you know, the, the people are saying it's a, you know, um, scandal and all that. I'm not going to call it that. You didn't do anything wrong. So to call it a scandal to me is insulting to you. That being said, you did live through an incident that most people will never have to know and can't even imagine. And you said when, when talking about this, and I read this incredible New York Times piece on you, which is really, I mean, obviously most people know your story, but that really opened up the person behind that story. And you talked in that openly about where you were in the moments after this all started to develop and you talked openly about the suicidal thoughts you were having and about how this wasn't new to you that you had had some struggles with that leading up to the election in the first place 
can we go there for a second and can we talk about what was what was going through your mind and where you were as a person when in, in essence your world began to crumble in a way that thank the higher power that we all whoever believes in most of us will never have to know and experience so basically when the photos started coming out you know it was this just total overwhelming and um and despairing kind of place that you immediately go into I think at first it's shock, right? And uh, you're just trying to figure out in survival mode what to do. But once that settled in and once I, I realized that I was going to have to, um, and, and this is interesting, and I, I'm sure you know this from trauma, and um, it's, since this is a mental health podcast, it's just something that you uh, are familiar with, but you the, the memories of that time are already kind of mushed and and the sense of time is is confused, but... Um, but I know that at, at a certain point, and I think this was, I think this was before I decided to resign, like right before I made it official that I was resigning, um, that I was, I, I was very suicidal. I was, I was, I just thought that, you know, I've let so many people down. Um, how can I face the outside world? How can I, um, you know, how can I go through life knowing that, you know, anyone that I meet, if they know who I am, then all likelihood they have seen these pictures. They've seen my most, um, you know, my most vulnerable, my most, uh, my most intimate and, and, um, you know, even my most, the, the, the stuff that I'm just not proud of, right. That I, that I feel, feel bad about, um, because of the relationship that I had and everything. So I, uh, I do feel, I, I, this is a, and for people who have been the victims of cyber exploitation or commonly known as revenge porn, um, more than half say that they have seriously contemplated suicide or attempted it in the aftermath. And, you know, many have tragically died and, uh, and that's even higher than the number of people of, of women who, uh, contemplate suicide in the aftermath of actual rape. So there's something about the public shaming aspect of it and the fact that you know you're never going to get those images back, no, never going to get that that power back or control over over your own body or your life uh, entirely back that makes it that makes you feel that much more um hopeless. So uh, so yeah, I have talked I have talked openly about that and and um I hope that my sharing of that story is one that um and I've gotten this feedback, which is part of why I've I you know, continue to tell the story, uh, that it helps people feel less alone and, um, know that others have been through it and have come out the other side. Well, and, and I'll say what really drew me to your experience. And thank you for sharing that, by the way, is that you said right off the bat that you wanted to make something good come out of this unbelievably awful experience. And it takes a lot to do that. And by the way, your turnaround, as I'm sure you've been told now by countless people is very fast. You know, it took me um, five years into recovery before I really started talking about mm -hmm. this. And it's because of this stigma uh, around these issues and, and yours uh, now talking openly about about suicide is in this industry, what we kind of call the double whammy, right? Because talking about mental health period is already facing stigma and then suicide is the the next step on mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. So how how were you able to turn this around so quickly to go all right, I've just experienced something that is going to be the worst moment of my life. So I can't imagine it ever being worse in that that moment. But then going okay, but now I have this opportunity to do something with this. Yeah. Um I think it was 
I think it was because when I decided to resign, you know, so many people had believed in me. So many people had worked hard to make this happen. Um, and I felt like, you know, resigning was enough of a letdown. It was enough of, um, I, I knew that it was going to make so many people feel, uh, a certain way. And, and, and I was afraid of what that would mean. So I felt this obligation to, to make something of it quickly. And, um, you know, I, the first time I talked about the, the suicide attempt was when I, uh, I wrote an op-ed about it in the New York times, I think in December of, uh, last year. So it was, it was basically a month and a half after everything had happened. And I just thought, you know, it was a way for me to process it too, and a way to kind of get it out there. And, um, the, you know, I remember writing, writing, and, and it started because I was writing on the train and I, I just was writing for my own feelings. And then I started thinking, you know what, I think this might be something to share more broadly. And, uh, but when I did, and I think this is also something that you're probably in and your listeners are probably very familiar with, um, just like kind of the re-traumatization of getting your, getting your story out there and, and going through it again. And, um, and then I went, went quiet for a while, but now that the book is out and I've been doing the, all the press and everything like that, it's, it is, it, it has been, pretty exhausting to just, uh, have, have lived, lived through it all again. And, and, um, you know, people's reactions are largely positive, but you, you get grilled on this stuff that you, you really didn't, you, you didn't, you don't, you know, you have to face again, but you don't necessarily want to. And when you talk about the worst moment, um, I thought it was the worst moment that I would ever experience too. But then I, uh, then my brother died of an overdose and, um, I was the one who found him. I did CPR on him and, um, and that was, you know, that, that kind of put everything else into perspective in terms of, um, you know, how, how fragile life is and, uh, and how, you know, how something that you think is the worst thing possible can be, uh, can very quickly turn into not, but it's been, it's been a year of a lot of trauma. Um, my mom was, my mom was having brain surgery at the time that my, she was still in the hospital from it when my brother died. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's part, I guess for me kind of talking about it and being out there and, sh and sharing my experience and, and hoping that it helps other people is, is part of my recovery. It's part of how I, um, how I process it and, 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 and moving through kind of the next steps in life. So I, I definitely want to talk about your, your brother. And again, I'm very sorry for his loss as someone who lived through it, an overdose. Um, you know, there is a little bit of survivor's guilt. It's when I hear these stories and, and, and I look at that and go, there's no reason that I should still be here and your brother shouldn't. So I, my, my heart is with you. Before we get to that, you, you said something that I think is incredibly important for, for to, to underscore. You know, those of us who are do, who do this work, we talk about the, the two big moments of your recovery. Number one is when you enter recovery, obviously. But number two is when you start talking about it, when, when you've reached the point that you can have these conversations in a frank and honest way and not the sort of surface level of, oh, yeah, you know, that was a horrible experience. But actually what you're now doing and saying, this is who I was in that moment. This is how it how it impacted me. What kind of work have you done? You were very open again in that New York Times piece about going to mm -hmm. therapy. What has that work been like for you to help you understand yourself more following this this incident? Oh gosh, 
Um, well, fortunately my, so I'd, I'd been with my therapist before. And so she, she knew about my prior history with trauma. She knew about my, you know, my relationship and, and the, you know, the challenges of going through a campaign and being an elected official and everything. So she had, she had kind of my entire history already. And I, I, I can't imagine trying to work with somebody or having tried to work with somebody who didn't have that. Um, because again, in that, in that moment, or, or right afterwards, it really is, it's about survival. And it's about how are you coping with, um, the immediate things that you need to kind of live through next. And, um, and so, you know, she was, she was a total lifeline for me. And, um, and unfortunately quarantine has made it harder to, I think for a lot of people to access therapy and I'm across state lines and, and the licensing stuff makes it even harder. So the last couple months, um, have been, have been more difficult to, to continue the work, um, as consistently as I would like. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, we, we often talk about how, if, uh, if we have, when we have like several sessions in a row, um, or, or close together, then we'll do more in-depth trauma work. Um, but if we, if we have long stretches in between, it's about, okay, what, how are your, what are your coping skills? How are you recognizing kind of when you might be, when you might be needing an intervention, how are you ensuring that you've got healthy habits and are, um, and are, you know, continuing to exercise and, um, how are you monitoring yourself? How are you staying connected to your friends and family? And, uh, and so it's really, it creates kind of an accountability for these things that you know are going to keep you healthy and safe. And, um, but, you know, so I, but so when we get into the trauma stuff, when we, when we really dig into that, that's a different level of, um, you know, it opens, it opens up the wounds much harder, but I think it, it helps you also get to the bottom of things. Trauma work is really hard. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, um, you know, I, I talk about, uh, my, when I was getting off of, of the prescriptions that I was addicted to, I did what's called a step down detox. Oh, it yeah. took four months. Yeah. And so it's like you reopen the center every day and that wound just slowly heals yeah. and trauma work is no different. Yeah. You just have to keep tearing it open yeah. in a safe way, but, but, but to get to that. Yeah. And you sort of referenced that it wasn't like you were coming in to serving in, in Congress just any old or, or, or a or the typical story you were coming in as I, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong the first openly bisexual person in California's history to serve in Congress yep, is that the, right the first LGBT woman at all from California and uh, only the second bisexual openly bisexual person uh, ever in Congress the only other one being Kirsten Cinema. and do you think that that for the people that may have already been looking to take you down polit for political reasons, do you think that, I mean, I know my answer here, but I, I want you to talk about it. Do you think that it added more fuel to their fire? Oh, hundred percent. And it also, it also provided like uh, a, a ripe opportunity for them to, um, to use, to use the situation in an even more exploitative way, because, you know, women's bisexuality, when it is, you know, it, it, when it is acknowledged, it's, it's mainly in a sexual kind of, uh, fantasy fashion. And it's not something that is, um, that is really understood, right. Or, or even when you, you know, talked about as much and, and the relationship dynamics around it and how we kind of move, move through life, trying to figure it out is not talked about at all. Um, so I think, 
yeah, they, it was, it was very easy to kind of deploy that as an additional weapon in, um, and especially since the images gave fodder to it all. Yeah, I think we should make it clear to the listeners who, you know, this wasn't that the allegations almost were piggybacking on the attacks of you as a person for yeah. being poly, for being uh, LGBTQ, part of the community. Those were what drove, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Daily Mail and Red State, mm-hmm, I believe, are mm-hmm. the ones that really took the, the, yeah. the ball and ran with it here. But but they then came up with this allegation that almost was convenient as a oh we could we can bring this out because she may have done this but really we're targeting these things that we don't like about her yep, totally a hundred percent yep and and being young and being a woman and being outspoken and all of it was was uh it you know it all added up right and um and you know the the there's just so much that like you'll never be able to get people to understand about the relationship dynamics and, um, and you know, it's, it's hard, right. It's hard knowing that like I'm, and I think this is part of the, you know, where, where I went to the really dark places too. Uh, it's, it's, it's really hard kind of being lumped into this category of being an abuser, right. Of being on the list of two people, two women who have been in, in, um, sex scandals at all as politicians, um, rather than being on the other side, there's many women who have been in political sex scandals, but they're on the other side of it. Um, the only other person that I know of that's been a woman politician, I think there might be one other that I'm thinking of, but, um, but Amy Koch, who was in, uh, who is the Senate majority leader in Minnesota, she and I have had a, a great conversation just the other, just the other day, like, like a week ago, maybe. Um, but hers happened in like 2011, I think. And she was, she had to resign. She's a Republican actually, but there's just, we, when you look at lists of, of these kinds of scandals, it's like me and her and that's it. Um, as far as women go. Um, and also, you know, you, I'm, I am and have been a victim of sexual assault. And, uh, and so to, to feel like I'm now, I'm now classified as a perpetrator of it is really, really tough to swallow. And I think, and again, I, I can't imagine how you feel. I have empathy, but I have no, I have no context, but I do have admiration for how you, you could have, as, as a lot of these articles said, sort of, you know, uh, done the male thing and, oh, I've, I've sinned. I've, you know, all these things we always hear that the boilerplate responses and you haven't done that. In fact, I want to read a quote here because I love this so much. And you said, a part of your resignation speech, I'm leaving because of a, excuse me, of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse this time with the entire country watching, which is such a powerful statement and such a powerful statement from someone who was the victim and yet has been painted as the perpetrator. Yep. And, um, and it's been interesting these last few weeks, like the interview that I did right before this, they, there are some that really, really push you on, well, you know, why do you think it's a double standard? Why do you, why do you think that, uh, um, how do you think it, a, a man in this situation would have been treated differently? And, uh, and sometimes I'm just, I, you know, I try, I, I, I explain it to the best of my ability, but you also, uh, 
it's just like, how are we not seeing this the same way? I mean, to me, it's so self-evident. Um, but I don't know, I guess, I guess, um, we all have to try and try and help people understand. And I, and I wish that the case was simpler for me, right? I wish that it was just about the naked photos and that there wasn't this whole, um, me having a relationship with a subordinate because that was, uh, that definitely complicated things. But, um, and, and it's, it's not as black and white as just, and, and I wish, I wish it was because honestly, then I would have probably stuck it out. I would have, I would have been able to make a stance, a stance of saying, no, this is completely effed up and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let this work. But I, but I felt this additional responsibility because of my own, you know, actions, even though, even though at the time I didn't feel like they were ethically wrong. Um, but I, I, I know now, and I, you know, part of me even knew then that they could be perceived as wrong or that there, there was certainly a, 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 a potential imbalance. But for example, when, when I, when the relationship started, I was, I was, you know, I, the campaign had barely started. There were three of us working on it and I in no way felt like a superior. I felt like it was a, it was a team of peers. They were my age. They were, um, we were working 12 hour days together. It was, it was just, it just didn't have that same feel. I've been a, in charge of large numbers of people before and never in a million years would have considered having a relationship with one of them. But, you know, it's a, it's a campaigns are strange and, um, we make mistakes and try to learn from them. And I think I, I certainly paid the consequences for whatever wrongs I, I did. Well, I appreciate you, you, you painting that picture. And, and one of the themes that I talk about a lot, especially with these topics is that we, as a, as people just don't do shades of gray. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we love to lump things into good or bad, black or white. And, yeah. and, I think that's what we've seen a lot. And and you wrote in your book, and this is another amazing quote, talking about male allies, um, that of course you appreciate them, but as far you said, as far as I'm concerned, to successfully prioritize and win these vital battles, we need our leaders to be women. And I think it's so crucial because so much of us cannot conceptualize that we cannot understand these, these uh, experiences that, that women like you have gone through to get to where you are today. Yeah. And it's, it's not against men. You know what I mean? I think that there are plenty that are, that are trying and are empathetic. And, you know, last night on the, the, the convention, we, there was a big focus on the violence against women act and, and how Joe Biden made that happen in the first place. And I, I think that's a big deal. I think that it's great that that attention's being paid to it. But the fact that it, it has been stalled in, uh, in the Senate now, and the fact that it has, that it even needs to be reauthorized, that it's not something that is just so freaking obvious and that should be funded in a huge way and expanded on every single year shows you that we don't have an equal number of men and women in power, right? And, um, and it's, it's about lived experience. Like so much of this stuff is, if you haven't gone through it, um, then you're not going to be fully represented. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to, to, to understand and, and really get the implications of how laws, uh, how laws affect people and how, you know, things are going to be implemented and, uh, and the, the consequences of it all. 
and the double standards that do exist that sometimes, as you perfectly were, were, were saying earlier, people just can't seem to open their eyes to. Yep. And, and I think it does say a lot that you had this experience and, and, and chose to resign just by, as you've talked about a lot, most people or many people saying that they did not wish you to resign. Yeah. And yet we have hordes of, and we can all name a lot of men who have much more blatant or, or extreme circumstances that were inappropriate and still remain, including our president who, who has been accused yeah. so many times yeah. of, of inappropriate and also of rape. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the perfect example, right? Is, is the guy who's sitting in the white house and how, you know, even when the tape came out, of him talking about sexually assaulting women. He just, he bragged about it and didn't care. And no, you know, and still had a majority of white women vote for him. That just blows my mind. Um, and I think that shows you how internalized, how deeply internalized, uh, sexism is for all of us, not, not just men, um, but also even women. And I, I have, and I was trying to formulate this question. I was sitting with talking to my wife about it and there's just really no easy way to say it, but, are you angry with the people who have gone out and searched for the pictures? And let me kind of broaden that. The example that we came up with is that obviously if you were not a young person, a young woman from California, this wouldn't be a big deal. Like the joking example we came up with was if these were Mitch McConnell's pictures, no one's looking people for would be, people <laughs> would not only that, they'd be paying the person not to release right, them. Right. I know. And yet for you, this became a sensation where they were totally. trending. Totally. Yes. And, um, and uh, am, am I mad at them? I, I guess, I guess I was, uh, it was more focused. My, my anger was more focused on the people who, who put them out there in the first place. But, you know, and there is another example. There's, a, there's uh, John Barton, who was a, a member, a Republican member of Congress from te Texas who had a photo, uh, an explicit photo that he had sent someone, um, that was leaked and, or it was, you know, it was put out on social media, but like, he's a, he's a, an old man uh, and like had a big old stomach and like, they, they totally hid everything like below the waist. And there's not, of course, no one's looking for that. No one's looking for that in a sexual way. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, you have people commenting on your body who are, who some, many of them are, are like, yeah, you know what I mean? But then there's others who, who like comment about it negatively. And that affects you too, even though you're like, it's, it's not like you want people to think you're hot, but you also don't want, you're like, these are very unflattering pictures. These are not pictures that I would have sent in any, like any case that I would have, uh, been trying to, you know, be appealing or whatever. And, um, and so you get, you just, people just say nasty stuff. And the fact that you're having that anyone gets to have an opinion on that is not something that you would ever want. Well, I, I did not go looking for them. I thought it would be sort of disingenuous if I did. And then I was asking you these questions. That's okay. But you yourself have said that you, in some various ways, you've sort of started to embrace this in a way that's more tongue in cheek, right? Yeah. You, you're calling your podcast naked politics. Yeah. Um, and you you gave that quote before where you were like the worst thing that, that to you now is that they weren't even flattering yeah, like this yeah. wasn't a positive 
the the actress Allison Pill once said when she she accidentally tweeted a picture of herself topless. This was years ago, and when she was asked about it. She said, "You know, I've just come to the realization that if I meet somebody on the street, they've probably seen yes. me naked." Yeah, that's. I I think I said that exact same thing to um in a, in an interview the other day. Is that you just have to kind of accept that as your norm. Is that if I if I run into somebody and they know who I am, then they've there's a very high likelihood that they've seen these pictures. Um, and I just have to be okay with that. Like, you know, and that's, and that's why I've tried to kind of adopt this. Um, you know, I'm just going to accept it and I'm going to, um, own it right. As, as much as I can. Cause if you hide from it, if you stay ashamed of it, I don't think you're going to be able to recover. You know, you just, it, and, and, and I was talking to Amy Koch about this too. Um, on her podcast, she's the, the Senate majority leader I was telling you about in Minnesota. She said that it took her, it took her years before she could really talk about it. But now she does, you know, she does the same thing and, um, that, that you have to kind of be able to joke about it, or you have to be able to like somehow look at it in a way that allows you to, um, to not just internalize it as, is a form of like self loathing or embarrassment forever. So before we continue on that, because I, I have a follow-up question about the attitude, I would love to pause and give my listeners a chance to to learn where they can follow you or give you a chance to shout out. I know you have a book coming out. Let's let's do all that. Yeah. So um, on Twitter is where I'm the most active personally. It's uh, Katie Hill, the number four C A. That's my handle. Um, the website for the book is SheWillRiseBook.com. And uh, an important thing for people to know is that it, that's not just a place that you can order the book. It actually has a list of resources for people who have been, who, who either know someone or have themselves experienced something like cyber exploitation or sexual assault or domestic violence. It's got a, it's got a very concise list of these are the top resources that you need to know. And, um, and so I suggest people check that out just to kind of have that list handy because uh, it's been, you know, very thoroughly researched and, and I know that these are some of the most important ones. Um, and then the, the last one is, uh, nakedpoliticspodcast.com. Um, we have not released our first ap- episode yet because in the book just came out. So I've been kind of doing that, that tour, <laughs> um, the virtual book tour, but we'll, we're planning on releasing it in the next, you know, hopefully by the end of the month. If not, then it's going to be in the beginning of September. Um, so I think that covers it. I think those are the, the main ways and, um, yeah. Oh, 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 no. One, when I forgot it was her time. Um, so her, her time is the political organization, the political action committee that I started, uh, to support women running for office. And that's her dash time.com. You've been very busy. You know, I, yeah, I've had to figure out how to, how to stay busy. <laughs> All right, y'all. I got to take a quick break from the interview to remind you about my Patreon. As I mentioned on the way in, the link is in the show notes. It's a way for you to support the podcast if you appreciate what I'm doing or if you just want to help me out a little bit. Here's the thing. This isn't going to go just into my pocket or something. All of the funds from the Patreon are rolled right back into the show. That's the way this works. So if you like it, check it out. But I've got a special treat for you this week. I just uploaded it earlier in the week. It is the lost section of the Katie Hill interview. As I mentioned on the way in, the power went out on my entire island. 
not a minute into the show, and I freaked out because this was a big interview, and I was worried I was going to lose the whole thing. It's pretty funny. You can find it on Patreon exclusively. So check it out and subscribe. It would mean a lot to me. All right, back to the interview. So that's kind of where I want to pivot to. And in doing research to, to prep these questions, the, the word that I kept coming back to or that kept, I kept seeing referred to you was comeback, which to me, I bumped on that a little bit because there's almost a little bit of that LL Cool J, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But the piece that I, I, I sort of did hit on was that while that may be the case, there is a part of you that seems that this is the first time, at least in all these biographies I've read, that you've just been able to choose your next path. Yeah. That you haven't been, you know, you graduated young, you you went on to run a nonprofit, then you ran for, for office, and now you're actually getting to sit back and go, what am I going to do? Yeah, that's accurate. And there's something very freeing about it, right? I I was always moving so fast. And I even, I catch myself and I have a feeling that the next time I see my therapist, which is probably going to be next week, when I go back to California, um, she's going to tell me like, are you filling your time so that you don't deal with some of these issues? Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm guilty of. I know that. Uh, so I am, I, I have to be kind of aware of my tendency to do that. And, uh, and, and so since I've been going for so, you know, at, at this sort of breakneck pace for my whole life, um, I, it, it has been one of my coping mechanisms to not deal with, the trauma or to, to, um, you know, to push it away and, and say that this is, this is how I can keep, how I keep going. Um, but, but still for the first time in, you know, my adult life, it is, I do have space to be able to look around and say, what do I want to focus on? I like last night I was thinking after the convention, I was like, well, I, I don't know what this is going to look like yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to the campaign. I mean, I, I, I campaigned for, Kamala before when she was, when she was on her presidential bid and I'm going to reach out and see if there's anything I can do. Cause I'm, I'm actually planning a road trip, um, across, uh, you know, coming back to DC and I, I don't know what that could be, but there might be something. And, uh, and the fact that I just have that flexibility of saying, okay, I want to help with the campaign for a couple months. Like I can do that. And, um, there's a lot of freedom there and I, I am lucky you know, the, the book, the fact that I was able to sell a book very quickly, um, after it happened gate has given me a bit of the financial freedom. Um, you know, not that that's going to last too long because <laughs> the, the, the payment only gives you about it, it gives you about a year for, in my case to subsist off of, but you know, it's nice it, though. It, it's part of that is that of that of that breakneck speed that you were at before was that it seemed and, and there's this really funny allegory in the New York Times piece about uh, where you were going through your clothes and sort of sorting out what was just for politics and and it, it it sort of to me painted this picture going back to you being you know the first openly bisexual person from California that you were forced to fit yourself into this political box mm -hmm. and as my listeners know I, I spent uh, about half a decade working in local politics before doing everything oh, wow. I'm doing okay. now, and there really is a political box and it's yeah. it's not nearly as 
broad as sometimes it's painted to be yeah where you know that we accept you know everybody we love you no 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 i mean there is yeah. some of that of course yeah and but i think you I have was, to fit yourself you do and i think i was i was able to to be myself within that box and to um to try to expand the box as much as i could but you still you know you're not going to show up on the floor of the capitol wearing jeans and a t-shirt like as much as that might reflect your personality you just can't do that you can't curse on your official account because that's just not what people want from a politician. And I understand that, but now I can say whatever I want. I can wear whatever I want. I can like, I make an active choice when I decide to look a certain way, when I, um, you know, when I, when I decide to, to be more formal. Um, and I don't have to be, which is, which is really nice. I don't have people that I'm accountable to. Um, and, and honestly, this is, this is really the first time in my adult life that I haven't been responsible for, uh, you know, for a lot of other people. And I think a part of that, but by the way, that's really interesting that, that the sort of the, the presentability on the floor of the Capitol, despite that not being everybody's reality is very interesting. We could go down that direction uh, mm. and what that says about, you know, what cultures are accepted on the yeah. floor of the Capitol yeah, and what sure. aren't. But there was a part of your story that I found fascinating as someone who works in the substance misuse and drug use space and that was they always referred to the fact that there was a bong in the picture and it was never the focus of the piece instead it was your sexuality yeah which yeah. was shocking to me yeah because five to ten years i mean yes the sexuality piece would always have been but the bong being in the picture would have been a huge scandal I know. isn't that interesting isn't it, that crazy yeah i i thought that too um and when the bong was was brought up it was that it was dirty bong water <laughs> and, and, and i'm like listen you can't it, uh, <laughs> campaigns take a lot of time you yeah. can't always be yeah. clean in your bong right. water and um and so i just i don't even remember yeah um what the situation was that day but i'm like maybe it's because i was in california and like you know people expect that to a certain extent from californians and also i was very upfront like throughout the campaign i'm like was i was i i was a very um pot friendly kind of candidate <laughs> but um yeah I, I i think you're absolutely right i mean and and probably Obama is a big part of why this was okay when he, uh, when he was running and he's like, yeah, I smoked pot. You know what I mean? Like, um, it, so, so yeah, the times are definitely changing in that regard. And hopefully over time pieces around sexuality and around other, other things are become less, less controversial as well. Cause at the end of the day, I think that we're going to be our best as a country when we have, when we have representation by real people, people who have who are just normal and, but who are, are good leaders and who want us to be better and who are committed to that. Whether they smoke weed or not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and drug use is a thing that is becoming more and more open to talk about. Yeah. And, and part of that is the unfortunate reality of overdose. Yeah. And, and that's where I do want to pivot to talk about your brother. Mm -hmm. And again, I am incredibly sorry that you had to be the, the person that, that went through this as the, persons that found him and that I can't imagine as only being the person on the other end of that I can't imagine what you were feeling yeah was this something that had been discussed between you before and I don't mean his drug use I meant you know if I'm right it was cocaine with fentanyl mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was this sort of the thing that he was just it truly was the minority of he was trying to have a good time and unfortunately the dealer mixed in some fentanyl or was this something he had struggled with before 
So he had struggled in, in high school, um, with, he was, he was a, a, he just used all kinds of different things. He was like a risk taker. And, um, and so he didn't have like one drug of choice. It kind of, it started with pills. It started with opioids, but then he, you know, he kind of got into everything. Um, but he, you know, I felt like we intervened early. He went to, um, he, he went to wilderness. He did, uh, therapeutic boarding school. My family, like put every bit of financial, you know, I mean, they, they, they took out loans to make it possible to like, to do everything possible to, to make him successful and to help, help him, uh, you know, have a chance at recovery. Um, and it seemed like it was working and it, you know, it, he, he was back on his feet. He had finished. He was, he came out and he was so motivated around the military and he was able to get in despite his, uh, his history. And, um, and it was, he was so proud. I mean, he was training to become a Navy SEAL. And, um, and so I don't, you know, my mom, he, we had to come back. All of us had came back because my mom, because of my mom's surgery. And so literally she had surgery. He came back on a Wednesday. She had surgery on Thursday. We went and visited her on Friday and, um, well, I mean, we were there on Thursday too, but we went and visited her on Friday. He and I hung out Friday night. Um, and then the next morning he was dead. And, um, and so I, I've felt a tremendous amount of guilt for not recognizing it, for not realizing what was going on. And, and, um, and I, you know, we've, we've speculated a lot. We've talked to his friends about it. Um, it turns out that we, you know, we learned later that he, he may have even been using while he was in the military. We didn't know it. Um, but the, the cocaine was, that was a, I don't know why he did it. If he, if he woke up and was hung over and that was something that he did to try and to just do a bump and like, I don't know. I, I, you know, we, we really, we really don't know what, what it was, but yeah, it was, it was definitely laced. It was clearly not what was intended. And my sister has a theory that he, cause there was no, we didn't find any drugs that the, um, the, uh, the police and the, and everything as they were looking through the whole house and through his, his person, um, they, the the only thing they found was, a it was a bag that was empty that had the powder in it. So my sister's theory is that the, he, you know, he'd been using the cocaine from the bag and it was fine, but then at the bottom, like the fentanyl had settled or something like that. So his last hit was, was just, was way more potent and, um, and he'd just come back to California too. So it was, you know, he, he bought it from a new person. We, you know, we don't know, we don't know any of that stuff. And, um, and it was, you know, uh, it, I think, I think it's just a, there's just so many different things around it, right? Like it's a, when it's a real lesson around, um, you know, you don't know what people are going through or what people are even when you think you are so close to them, I mean, he and I had spent hours together the night before and, and it felt like we talked about everything and I still didn't know. And, um, and, you know, I also know that he was really stressed out about the, what was going on with my mom. And I think that's a, you're ripe for relapse at that point. And, um, and I just, you know, I was there in the same house as him and I felt like there was, you know, I, I would have, I would have been able to see that and you just don't. And, um, and then it's also the, the recognition that now 
so much is laced with fentanyl that people don't even realize. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, stuff that might've been stupid, but not deadly before is, is now. Um, yeah. Well, again, and I I can't say this enough. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, you, you, in a lot of your interviews and plenty of times now with me, you've you've described your guilt for various things. And guilt has a way of really getting to a person. Mm-hmm. It, it is one of the most fascinating feelings. And, and I mean that not in a, oh my God, this is so cool way, but in a in a scientific way, in the sense that guilt has a way of driving people towards suicide and is the number one feeling of those who are alive after they've lost someone to suicide. Yeah, yeah. It has a way of really destroying people. It, how are you sitting with all this guilt? How I, I, I don't know how to formulate a question around that other than to say, I can't imagine going through all that you've gone through in such a short amount of time and being able to find a way through that guilt. Yeah. Um, I guess that's why I've turned my energy to a cause and to kind of trying to come out of it. And um, in a way, I think that how I've internalized it is by saying I am going to, um, you know, I feel I feel this guilt still. I know that I feel this guilt. Um, but if I can, if I can do good, if I can, if I can make something of this and, and, you know, I, I, I kind of, I would, I had, before my brother died, I was already working on this stuff with her time and, and the book. And, um, and I talk, I think, I, I think you probably read it, but at the end of the book, I talk about how Danny had said right before he died that he was proud of it and, and, you know, wanted me, like he was very supportive of me doing this stuff and, and it made me want to continue with it. But I've also been thinking, okay, now that these kinds of parts of it are wrapping up, like what's, what's the next thing that can, that I can do that, that can honor him and that can, you know, help people who are, who are going through these kinds of things. And, um, and I haven't quite figured that out yet. Uh, but I know that, that I need to, for me to be able to feel okay. Um, so, but I also know that that, that might just take more time. That might, you know, my, my, I haven't, I, I know that I've, I'm nowhere near having processed all of the grief and that I've, that I have been kind of hiding from it by, by staying so busy. And, um, you know, I'm going back to California next week because we're, uh, his birthday, his 21st birthday would be on September 1st. And so we're going, uh, as a family, we're doing a trip to scatter his ashes, um, at his favorite place, which was, and, and this is another weird, I mean, I was really, really close to him. He, you know, he lived with me for a year. Um, and I think probably people listening to this might even think that I sound cold or detached around it because probably I am detached from it. I've, and, it, and, you know, it comes in, it comes in, waves where you're just, you just collapse from grief. I think people who've been through any kind of grief or loss know this. Um, but you, you, um, I, so that, that place that we're going to scatter the ashes was this place that only I've of the family, only I've been to, I took him to it. We started going to it, um, to go camping when he was eight years old. And my mom, my mom was the one who decided that he should have his ashes scattered there because I guess 
you know, it had some conversation about it at one point. Like he, if he said that if he, if he dies ever, he wants his ashes scattered there. And, um, to even have had that conversation, you know, with a, with, with a teenager, basically, you, you know, you, you kind of wonder like how much did he, how much did he really know that he was, he was not long for this world. Um, but, but I know that it's going to be, I have to like lead the family in going to these places that were so important to us and important to him. And, oh man, that's going to be, that's going to, I'm going to be a wreck next week. So yeah. Well, my thoughts will be with you. That is um, an incredibly powerful story. And I find strength in, so the choose your struggle brand, what my whole thing is, is ensuring that you are chasing the definition of success that you have defined for yourself. Mm -hmm. And, and I find strength in the fact that you are doing that in like 10 different directions. Now, as you said yourself, your therapist may have some words about how much of that is healthy and how much of it isn't, but, (laughs) but um, you truly are living that and going, these are the things that, that I I am chasing after. And it's wonderful that one of the last things you said to you was how proud he was of of this work. Um, So I would like to, before we go into the last couple of questions, I would like to use this opportunity one more time to pause and say, throw out a couple of those where people can follow you and support your work. Yep. So uh, her time is, and I, and I hope we can get a little bit more into what that or the organization does, but it's her dash time.com. Um, and the podcast where you can sign up to get alerted when the podcast actually launches is naked politics com, Um, and my Twitter handle is Katie Hill, the number four CA and the book site is she will rise book.com. And it's, uh, that's where you can find the resources for people who, um, who have been victims of domestic violence or sexual assault or, um, or, uh, um, cyber exploitation. And, um, you know, I hope people check that out, even if, you know, they have no intention of buying the book. So I finished with the same two questions and I have one particular one to finish with you, but, but normally one of those is who are we not following that we should be? And, and if you want to deal with that too, that's great. But I would like you to spend that time to talk about what her time is, is trying to accomplish and in all the amazing work there. Yeah. There's a ton of people that, um, that I would love to, to talk about. One of them is just coming up. It's, or that's just popping to mind. Um, immediately is, is my, is my attorney, my victim's rights attorney, Carrie Goldberg. Um, and it's just CA Goldberg. Uh, and she's, she's basically just anything related to cyber exploitation and all kinds of different victims' rights stuff. She's, she's fascinating. She's so smart and funny. And, um, and if you, if you look at, at her, you'll start getting kind of these other suggestions of people to follow. And it's just, um, if, you know, I think that that's a, an experience, the, the cyber exploitation piece, it's an experience that more people than we, than we even know go through in some form or another. Um, but the other one that you should follow is her time <laughs> on, on, uh, uh, on Twitter. And if you look up, it's, it's, uh, shoot now I, the, the hand, if you just, just look up her time 2020, um, and I'll link, I'll link all of this okay. in the show notes as well. Cause I feel like, you know, how Twitter makes you have weird, weird handles sometimes. Um, but it's, so the PAC does, uh, we do three things. The first is that we support women candidates, especially young women and women of color who, uh, might be long shots. They're people who are in, uh, who, who are not necessarily 
um, that we, we come in and support them before a lot of other organizations might. We take a risk. Um, we see we, a lot of potential. We think that they might be perfect fits for their district. Uh, but they need an additional boost before they can kind of make it on the scene. They need a fundraising boost. They need a credibility boost. They need, uh, they need something before these other organizations and supporters will jump in. And, um, I know from my own race how hard that can be and how, how much of a difference it makes if you, if you get that one first organization to kind of give you a chance. And so that's kind of the one that we're, that, that's the space that we're trying to fill. And we've had um, some great success so far. The, the the one that I'm most proud of is Candace Valenzuela in Texas, who's running to flip a seat. And she's a she's a young mom. Um, she's she would be the first Afro Latina in Congress. Um, she's a uh, she's just an, an amazing candidate. But she was totally the long shot. And um, but now she's we were the first ones to come in, and then Emily's list came in, and a whole bunch of other orgs came in. Um, and she won her primary, uh, well, she, she, she was able to win in a runoff of her primary. And now it looks like she's got one of the best shots at flipping this seat in November. Um, so that was, that, that's, that's one side of it is supporting these candidates. The second piece is that we are looking at how we can, uh, really mobilize young women as a voting block and, um, you know, specifically young women between the ages or women between the ages of like 18 and 40 who are not necessarily totally consistent in showing up for elections, but could be. And I think are now at the place where they're, uh, they're, they're likely to be if we can get that message right. But we don't want them to just show up for presidentials, but we want them to show up for every single election and we want them to vote for women. Um, and so we're, we're doing the research into what that's going to take. And so we're going to do some experimenting this year, um, and, uh, and try to get some studies done around that and, you know, make, make sure that we're using that, uh, effectively and getting that information out there for other organizations to use too. And then the last thing is, uh, that we're advocating for this, for this set of legislative, um, initiatives that will help women. And I lay those out in the book and they're ones that in many cases have already passed the house, but need to pass the Senate and need to get signed. And so if we flip the Senate and we get Joe Biden in the white house, um, then the pressure needs to be on to make sure that these continue to be prioritized. Well, that is incredible work. <laughs> uh, I will make sure to, to link all of this in Thank the show you. notes, but definitely listeners, please go follow her time and, and, and learn more about this. I'm going to do that as soon as I get off here. This Thank is really you. incredible. Uh, that was, the, I think, the piece of your work that I was least familiar with, and now I'm very excited about it. Great. Thank you. I will go do that. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I'm very <laughs> conscious of both of our times and got a couple more here. The other question I always end every episode with, because this is a podcast about mental health, is what are your self-care habits that you're doing? And I think my listeners can be very interested to know in all, after all of this, during all these amazing things you're doing, what allows you to just stop and breathe? Yes, um, that is a great question. And um, I have a few so um, right, I, I think I told you right now, I'm, I'm visiting a friend in Delaware and the, I've come, this place has become kind of like a safe haven for me, um, because it's, you know, it's a couple hours from DC and, uh, and it's right on the river. And so I coming here, you're, you're able to go, like I went crabbing the other day and, and so I, you know, I, I'm from Southern California. Crabbing is not a thing that you're familiar with at all, but, um, but I've over, you know, this last, this last year, coming here as, um, as part of being able to decompress around everything. I've like, 
you know, I've gotten okay at crabbing and I've learned to, <laughs> to really, this, this is like the coolest neighborhood. These people, they, it's just like small town stuff that I can't even, I've never experienced before. Everybody just like walks into each other's yards and they have these, like, if you, if someone in the neighborhood went crabbing, then they all have a big old crabbing feast. And, <laughs> um, and it's just so funny and I love it. And, um, it's just so different from what I, what I grew up with and what I know. And you go on these long floats in the river and, um, and then the other is when I'm, when I'm in California, I, I, uh, I stay at this, this other house that's on the beach and I, uh, the beach, basically beach water, those kinds of places are places that I can just like get serenity and, um, you know, kind of flow into the waves and, uh, and nature just getting into getting out of the city. If I'm at home, I have my cat. That's a, that's an important way to, to decompress. And, um, you know, I, I do my best to, to exercise and things like that. But, uh, quarantine makes that hard, especially when you're in the city. So, you know, you kind of figure it out day by day, but those are my two big ones. (laughs) Well, shout out to pets. I know my, my dog is that for me as well. And, uh, you and my wife have that in common about the water. She's always the happiest when she can see the water or touch the water. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely get that one. Uh, last question last night during the, during the, uh, democratic, um, convention Convention. Uh you tweeted that uh barack obama reminds us that hope was a thing not so long ago time to bring it back which is a really beautiful thing if you wouldn't mind speak directly to those listeners who have lost hope whether it's in their personal lives and what's going on in our country what is giving you hope and what should they be looking at in terms of how they can find some hope yeah what's giving me hope is the future and the fact that the future is there i think we've I think we really have kind of bottomed out. And I, um, I think that you sometimes have to go to the darkest places to see where we need to go and, um, and what it's going to take to get there. And I think that as a country, we're seeing that. Um, but we have to be able to kind of lift ourselves up and, and, and embrace the belief that it can and will get better, but only if we're all committed to it, it won't happen on its own. Um, and you know, it's easy. It's just like with depression, right? It's easy. And, to sit there and just like not get out of bed and, and, um, kind of, you, you have to really push yourself to sort of take that next step and, and get up and, and, um, and push through it. And, uh, and that doesn't, that's not easy. So I, I kind of think that collectively we're in a depressed state and we need to, we need to push ourselves out of it. And I'm hopeful that this election is a way that many of us can do it. And, um, and I think that, you know, we've, we're seeing this group of young people who are being elected of, of, um, people of color of these, these, uh, I don't know, groups within our society that have never been represented before, but who are. And, um, you know, I, I think that we have the chance to really, to really change the face of government and the face of who our leadership is at every sector. Um, and we'll, we'll end up in a much better place after a few years, but it's going to take, it's going to take some time for us to recover from the mess that has been created. And, uh, and, you know, just like anything, recovery is not an immediate thing, but, um, we'll get there. Well, Katie Hill, it has been a true honor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for being an inspiration to so many people and thank you for continuing to fight. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone 
or your computer. They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you all for hanging out with the Choose Your Struggle podcast today. Huge, enormous thank you to Katie Hill. I, I just, she was so vulnerable. She was so open. She was so honest. You know, you could tell there were parts where she was uncomfortable, where I was uncomfortable. It was, it was deep. I mean, I just, I can't imagine living through what she did and, and fighting so hard to come out the other side and then going, I'm going to do something good with this. I, I mean, like that's <laughs> boiling it down. That's also my story, but so different. And it so pales in comparison. You know what I mean? Like, she's just so courageous for that. And, and I really respect her and admire. I just really admire her for that. So thank you to her. I, I'm not going to do my, my typical summing up the episode, all that kind of stuff. I don't usually sum up. That's not the right word. But like, you know, talking about it because I don't know how to in this one. I think it just is a lot that we need to we need to sit with. I want to hear from you, though. Reach out. Tell me what you took away. Tell me, you know, if 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 hearing her changed your attitude towards the incident, I want to hear from you. You know how to reach out to me, so do that. Without further ado, we're going to go into the Choose Your Card. There are the cards. As always, brought to you by the Blurt Foundation. Check out Blurt. They're doing some awesome work. In honor of Katie who found a way to believe in herself after this incredible, and I mean that in a negative way this time, incredible experience. We're going to use the Believe in Yourself card pack today. Believe in Yourself card pack. And this one is perfect. It's the first one I pulled out. I kind of think we may have used this before, but if we did, it's okay, because it, it's perfect for today. Sometimes life really and truly sucks, but it isn't a reflection on you. You don't suck. The circumstances do, not you. How you feel isn't who you are. And that's so perfect for today because that's something that Katie wrestled with. And she, you know, she's, she talked about how much guilt she is, she's wrestling with, how much guilt she's, she's working to overcome. But sometimes you just can't. You know, I actually had someone reach out to me yesterday and say, how do I live with the, this guilt? How do I live with knowing I've done something wrong? And my advice to this person was, you just kind of have to. That you, you, you tell the person, you know, you reach out to the person and say, I'm so truly sorry. What can we do to make this right? But you know at some point that you can't make it completely right. And after doing everything you can to make it right with the other person, you got to make it right with yourself. And what I mean by that is exactly what this card said, you know, convincing yourself that the circumstances aren't you. You may have screwed up. You may have really fucked this one up. But it doesn't make you a bad person. To a certain extent. Obviously, there's always the extreme. But I just mean, for most of the people listening to this, if you've made a mistake, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Just do what you can to, to fix it and go from there. But you have to get right with yourself. 
In honor of that, that's your good egg this week. Spend some time sitting with something uncomfortable. Something you did, something that is happening, something that has happened. And acknowledge that the circumstance is not you. You know, like I said, you do have to make it right. You got to do everything you can to make it right. But at some point, it's never going to be 100%. You cannot completely fix things. And you just got to get right with yourself. So spend some time sitting with it and then telling yourself, this doesn't make me a bad person. Get right with yourself. All right. Reach out. I want to hear from you. Check out the Patreon. Check out the podcast survey. All of that is in the show notes. Leave a rating if you wouldn't mind. Leave a review. All of that is very easy to do. Again, review is there's now a link in the show notes, so it makes it very easy. Rating, you know, a lot of the podcast uh, apps and everything can can let you do that. Share this. It means the world to me. Share the episode, especially this one with Katie. This is a big one. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, show your empathy, spread your love, embrace your vulnerability, and choose your struggle.